All right, Chumbo, let's move on to where I think of, I think that this is really where what we think of B-movies and like how most people would define B-movies, this is when they begin to really take shape in the 1960s and 70s during the exploitation boom. Um, mm-hmm. Agree or disagree with that general statement? Oh, I definitely agree with you on this. This is the era where things start to open up in so many ways for Hollywood. This whole like new Hollywood thing starts around this time yep. too. So when you do think of this era, era of movies, what are the first things that come to mind? Okay, so I'm going to try to say this the right way here and then I'll expand on it. I think that movies in the 60s and 70s are closer to what we see today than they were uh, movies from like the 20s and 30s and stuff. Mm. This is where um, movies really start to take a modern shape in terms of storytelling and camera work and like effects and all this stuff. This is when like, you know, they really started to, especially with like effects in the 60s and 70s, like really ramp that shit up and set a standard that like some films struggle to meet today. Like some Mm -hmm. 70s effects movies and stuff were so good. So, um, like, I think that um, in general, this era right here is like where a lot of movies that we see today comes from. Portrayal of violence, like in, in like The Godfather and stuff, for example, like when they literally show Sonny's body getting shot up and mm-hmm. um, things like that. Like that wouldn't have happened. Like people were getting shot up like in movies before, but it was never like at that detail and stuff. You know, you really start to see this. Um, line of reality and um, filmmaking sort of like blur together in this way that um, really like just the influence on it. We still feel it today. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. The the it's actually it's more than the seeds of modern cinema. It's it's our first. Um, we're we're sprouting our first what I what I think are like really modern movies are sprouting mm-hmm. at this point in time with. Um, in some cases, like nonlinear storytelling with with more modern um, camera techniques and shooting techniques with mm-hmm. um, inverting, inverting not even just like the storytelling structure, but like inverting what we kind of think of as being good guys and bad guys, inverting, yeah. con- you know, general concepts of like what what had what had been go- going on in Hollywood mm-hmm. since, you know, the birth of film. And if you want to even like extend it beyond that, even stage plays and things. Um, yeah, we're really changing like what they can be at this point in time. It's uh, you're 100 percent right. There's a lot of I guess I would just in general say like there's a, a very interesting experimentation of what we can do and then an inversion of what we have done. Yeah. Oh, I definitely got you on that one for fucking sure, dude. This whole like era to me in particular, like what's what's really interesting about it in terms of like the way that people like with characters and stuff like that, like when we would do like the anti-hero before, you know, is like this noir kind of stuff. It's always like, you know, some kind of like drunken private eye guy, you know, there's kind of like these character types and personas that were you know pushed and used to the fullest extent you know prior to the 1960s and 70s mm-hmm. when we get to this era we start to see the door open up a lot more and even in terms of like how characters are developed the style of characters anti-heroes start to become more than just the the, the drunk private eye with a with a grizzled face mm-hmm. and like a choices grizzled past so it feels like 
because of the mass culture shift that we've experienced in the 60s and 70s, that this culture shift, this culture awakening, these broadening horizons of our society are reflected in the um, in the, the entertainment that comes out in this era. I Yes, absolutely. We, we always talk about how movies are kind of a mirror for what's going on in society. And I think, I, I mean, that, that that's always held true and it holds true here especially, but I think it's even it's even more so than a mirror that I think I think a lot of these movies also help significantly inform um, culture at this point in time more so than at any point in time previously that mm-hmm. that society was taking its cues from some of these filmmakers who were doing stuff that was significantly more daring than previously um, you know we we'll get into some specific movies and stuff here in a little bit but um, <clears throat> But like, you know, so I think the mirror thing exists, but it's almost like it's almost like there was a direct uplink from society mm-hmm. to movies at this point in time. Like it's it, like the 60s and 70s, especially especially in the United States, extremely tumultuous civil rights period. Um, mm-hmm. And the movies our movies reflected that. But even over in Europe, you forget that they were going through at various point at various countries. They were going through their own sort of cultural revolutions as well. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them, and some of them were violent um, at, at this point in time. So you have both European and American cinema responding very, very quickly to what was going on in in the zeitgeist. Oh, exactly, dude. And like whether they're making statements about um, the actual like events through film, or even if they are um, sort of just like adapting to what society is more tolerant of these movies have started to expand upon and everything like that. You Mm -hmm. may start to see uh, different themes that are maybe slightly more prominent than what they were in previous years and stuff. Like Mm -hmm. if you take like the LGBTQ community, you might have characters that are a little bit um, more, um, more like um i guess gay in the in the in the like would you see yeah, stuff I would, like that whereas I'll, you watch strangers if you watch strangers of a train it's like supposed to be like implied you know that yes i was gonna say the, the the gay coding is more obvious if you know what you're looking for mm-hmm. yes exactly so like with this you know and it's not just and it's not just with the lgbtq community it's with like with drugs it's like mm-hmm. with um elements of of race and stuff like that and and i think it's in the 60s in star trek is when there's the first interracial kiss that's on screen it's like the the 60s star trek Mm -hmm. so like what we are starting to open up um as a society more and start to like you know become less asshole-ish about these movies and this art is sort of reflecting these little nuancey things that um weren't necessarily anywhere to be found on screen before yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there. I, I don't. You know what? I'm not gonna. I'm not going to take away from that point. You made it really. You made it perfectly. Um, so let's move on. <laughs> I don't. I literally don't want to spoil your point. You, like you made it really. You made a great point there. So, like we said, the the modern B movie is really born out of this exploitation era, um, which is largely mostly made possible by the death of the production code, um, mm-hmm. or the Hayes yeah. Code, which which we'll get into, and. We'll get into it a little bit deeper, but basically, it was it, it wasn't anything that you had to follow. It was more of more of a we will follow the, these rules as a filmmaker to make sure that 
you know, our films are getting distributed, that we're not getting slapped with fine or anything else. We're not going to be investigated for communism or something. Um, right. Um, that That's what, you know, so it was, it was more of like a, you, you just personal code of conduct, but it was, it, it, there was some actual codification. Like you could actually read some of the rules if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, but anyway, the production code dies by, I think it's 1968. Um, you know, then mm-hmm. we institute the actual rating system that we're more familiar with. Um, but the death of the death of the production code and the success of movies like Psycho, Easy Rider, which we mentioned before, Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead, uh, and then do, do, you know to, to jump more into the seventies and the seventies style of, of exploitation film, Foxy Brown and Assault on Precinct Thir- Assault on Precinct Thirteen, kind of jumps these. I mean, these are these are definitely B movies. But they are definitely mm-hmm. jumped into sort of um, they're movies that are almost almost a movies, if you will. Um, I know yeah. there's a I know there's a term for them. It might be like B plus movies or whatever. But these are these are movies with that are working in genre that are that are definitely jumping much more jumping forward in pop culture. Um, and that's and they're sort of ushering in the next um, the next wave of like what would become the exploitation era movies. Um, mm-hmm. So. Just taking those movies that we that just mentioned above, what are some of the commonalities that they share that they really kind of show off as sort of the changing winds of the exploitation boom? Okay, so like for starters, like um, Psycho, Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead, these definitely like fit into like the horror kind of genre and stuff like that. Um, so there's some commonalities in those. Yeah. Um, there's definitely like a lower budget in commonalities. Like I noticed that Rosemary's Baby is the most money that is sunk into these movies at $3.2 million. Mm-hmm. Every other production doesn't cross the $1 million mark. Right. Um, and then the other thing is that each one of these are kind of like explicative of different things in their own way. Like whether it's the, I've actually, this term exists as like cycle exploitation or something like that. I saw from like Easy Rider, like car exploitation stuff. Yeah. Um, and then like you know you have different um, exploitive things about like the uh, it was like Rosemary's Baby going after like sort of like a religious kind of element mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, Foxy Brown definitely aiming at the African American cultures. Black exploitation movies. Pam movie. Greer, yep. no people. Yeah, black exploitation movies and like assault on um, precinct. 13 i only could think of just like exploiting like violence and stuff like yep. that mm-hmm. um because it's not even though it's like you know gangs motorcycles and stuff it's not necessarily what i consider to be like a car movie of that right. time period right exactly um i, I think uh, you know all, all excellent points you're on point especially with assault on precinct 13 that is a violent exploitation movie i mean it's it's not yeah. violence for the sake of violence but it's just showing like a, hey by the way when people get shot this is what happens to them um <laughs> right um so you're you're dead on with those and i'll add to it that these all of these movies much more so than the b movies from the golden era from you know from the golden era of hollywood and then previous to that these all have something very as you mentioned something very pointed to say about something mm-hmm um rosemary's yeah. baby is is definitely a critique of religion um especially mm-hmm. especially catholicism and christianity night of the living dead is um it, it's religious but it's also more of a societal take on things um you know mm-hmm. what was going on in the united states at that point in time um right foxy brown like most black exploitation movies you know you're putting you're 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 putting black people at the forefront to make a significant statement about what american society was like at this point in time and mm-hmm. not a coincidence that the gang that Foxy Brown has to cut her way through, it's all white drug dealers. 
Um, of course. You know, that, that, that the, that's an easy one. Psycho, you know, it's like, I'll go to Precinct 13 first. Um, just general violence and how, like, the, how America at this, especially in the late 70s, heading into the 80s, um, Carpenter had already picked up on it, and I'm sure a lot of other people have had too at this point. America was just becoming more violent, and mm-hmm. a lot of it seem, was seemingly meaningless. And realistically, yeah. at the end of the day, Assault in Precinct 13 is meaningless violence, um, is, is yeah. what he's making critique on. And then to go back to Psycho, I, I don't think it was in the way that, that Hitchcock necessarily wanted to set out to do it, but I think you can look back at it now and talk about how, I mean, to the title, obviously, this is a story about someone's absolutely uncontrolled mental illness. And mm-hmm. how it's how it's obviously you know affecting his day to day life. I mean, it's I, I don't I don't think the critique is that deep, but it's definitely there. Um, yeah, you know, you if you wanted that kind of that kind of commentary um, previous to the '60s and '70s, you had to go to a more mainstream. You had to watch a more mainstream drama. And mm-hmm. now we're getting genre films that are using using a horror using violence using um you know whatever at their disposal sci-fi or whatever to make these points as well now yeah oh dude it's it is just like a natural evolution there's only you can only make so many b movies so many genre movies before they start to say something it's just like with bands and everything like that i mean like the the fact that emo punk exists makes all the sense in Mm. the world like of course like after so much time people are going to feel emotions. People are going to have something to say. Their music is going to shape and become more mature. Like your green day, for example, like the difference between what they are now to what they are when they first started out. is like, you know, it's, it's the same, but it's like so different all at the same time. So mm-hmm. it's only makes sense that horror movies, that science fiction movies, action movies, black exploitation movies. It just makes sense that like, you know, that while a horror movie might just start off as like so-and-so, getting chased by Dracula or getting chased by the Wolfman, it only makes sense that that eventually is going to make even deeper statements, more profound statements, more statements about the current state of the the country or the Mm -hmm. world and everything. It's just the natural evolution of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just to, you know, as a quick example here, I'm going to go back. I'm going to cover prior to this and then after for this example, but it'll make sense. Um, The thing from another world from the 1950s, um, it's a mm-hmm. very straightforward, um, I think it's Howard Hawks. I think it's Howard Hawks. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. It's a pretty straightforward 1950s sci-fi movie. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with you know, with the monster invading the base and everything else, trying to kill people. When we get to The Thing, 1982, Carpenter's The Thing, um, it's now, you know, now looking at it almost, well, now actually 40 years later, um, you can draw all sorts of allegories from that movie. Um, mm-hmm. I, you, yeah, you listen to the blank check series on Carpenter and oh, you bet every episode, one of the guests, I can't remember, I can't remember the woman's name, but the, uh, the trans woman that was, um, sharing her opinion on the thing drew this really interesting and intense yes. trans yes. allegory from it about, yep. this is a, this is a creature amongst men that doesn't belong and knows it doesn't belong. And it's, mm-hmm. it is trying to figure out how to fit in and be one of them. So it doesn't get noticed. And she was yes. like, you know, as a man, uh, like you know, as as a man, that's how I was living my entire life, and then I had to change. And mm-hmm. but even then, even changing, I still have to kind of figure out how I live as a woman and how you can draw mm-hmm. that p- parallel directly to the thing. And it's was that Carpenter's intention? Probably not. I'm assuming it wasn't at all. But 
when you when you even when you're working in a, a in a B movie in a B movie in sci-fi genre about a fucking shape-shifting alien when you're when you when you know that there's something more to be said there it like that that message transcends the movie and yeah. that's what we're beginning to see at this point in time in the in the exploitation era in the 1960s and 70s messages that are mm-hmm. transcending the medium oh yes dude i listened to that episode she made a phenomenal, phenomenal point um, in this whole trans allegory and everything. And that's like the beauty about art in general. And that's the another beauty thing about stuff that's really great art is that you could just pull so much stuff from it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I could watch the movie and have some kind of allegory thing that I come up with. And like, I guarantee you it's going to be nowhere, nowhere near as good as what um, she had made on blank check. But like it might have some kind of weight to it in some way, shape or form, because there's all this different messaging and there's these sort of like universal, not necessarily like universal themes, but there's like these universal sort of messaging that Mm -hmm. people like pick up on. And over time, and as more stuff happens, like, you know, the thing could easily become allegorical for so many things depending on what the future holds for us and stuff so it's just like it's just like this beauty of um of making a movie like that that um can still make people think and generate new ideas and new allegories even to this day yeah yeah absolutely i'm sure if if you and i sat down we could pull um an addiction allegory out of the thing or mm-hmm. some, or you know, I'm just using the thing example. Or some of these other movies from this from this era, we could definitely pull different allegories from them because they are, for really the first time ever, trying to you know, like instead of instead of the alien just being an alien, the alien also represents my depression or my fear yeah. or mm-hmm. you know my 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 ex wife, goddammit, it, and how she made me feel. <laughs> like right. these things are finally representative of something else when previously they just simply. They, I shouldn't say collectively they simply weren't, but by and large, an alien was just an alien in the 1950s. Yeah, and like people didn't. I don't think people really like put forth the effort into looking at some of these B movies and some of their hidden messaging. Like some of them may have it, but at that point in time, like who the fuck really cares? You know, who the fuck cares what um, monster from the bottom of the ocean is yeah. saying when another movie from that point in time, maybe making a better, more definitive statement, right. you know? And I think it's, it's only at some point in time, like there are these planes of like, of the, of the art itself and like the meaning behind the art and these planes intersect better in this era than yeah. they do in the previous eras. That's a really good way to put it. That's a really good way to put it. I mean, there were, I don't want to like sell short previous iterations of the B movie, but like, you know, the giant ant in, you know, they attack it's, it's about new, you know, it's about nuclear war. Like it's Mm -hmm. the allegory is very straightforward when it is there. Right. Like you don't have to, you don't have to read too far into it. Yeah. It's not deep at all. Yeah. I I totally understand what you're saying for sure. Like, while as this trans allegory in the thing is infinitely more, rounded and with depth than the giant ant and nuclear right. uh, either nuclear waste nuclear power or whatever if you, if you can draw a trans allegory from from uh they attack i think it's called they attack or they i don't know it doesn't really matter but if you can draw a trans <laughs> allegory from that you might be you you probably are a genius and you just 
Yeah, you're thinking <laughs> at a different level than I am because it's just about it's about nuclear it's about nuclear war and making things gigantic. Um, that's what it's about. But yeah. anyway, let's round this back to, to Psycho, um, the 1960s Psycho, of course. Um, we obviously cover that in, in great detail. Um, and it's really important to this era of movies for a multitude of reasons. Obviously, it, it opens the decade in a pretty shocking manner for, um, you know, for most moviegoers at this point in time. Um, but do you know what, like, really made it instrumental in opening the doors to other, other types of this movie to follow? I did re- I couldn't find this one. Tell me what it is. I mean, it's, I have no it's idea. so, I mean, it's in general, it's the Hayes Code and the production, the Hayes Code slash production code being violated. But because... Mm-hmm. Hitchcock purposely violated it multiple times when he was writing the story. Like he was setting out to sort of push boundaries. And Mm -hmm. so that kept it out of distribution from like the, you know, the main, the main line of distribution that he would normally put his films through. And I, I think when we did the episode, we mentioned before that the reason why it's black and white is because he paid for most of it um, to make sure that it got made. So, like, this was all, you know, on his shoulders, essentially. And distribution was, he was responsible for finding um, distribution methods for this movie. And so it essentially exists, at this point in time, it's, it's you know, now tons of movies exist outside, quote-unquote, the Hollywood system. But 1960, very few did. And yet, he managed to make this massively successful, um, trend-setting movie, a genre, a, literally gave birth to a new genre of horror and um, he did it all outside of the general studio system. And it was one of those, it was just one of those signals to other filmmakers of that era that there is a way to get <clears throat> what you want to get done. There is a way to do it. You just mm-hmm. have to, you just have to want to do it. So basically, I mean, it yeah. wasn't like a trivia question necessarily. It was just sort of a, you know, like that, you know, this movie literally exists. It circumvented the normal routes and still became successful and was just a really important sort of torch for all the other filmmakers, for the Roger Cormans of that time, for um, <clears throat> take your pick, for Fonda, yeah. for you know, for Carpenter, that there just there are other avenues that you can get stuff done. You don't have to follow the system necessarily. Yeah, dude, exactly. Yeah, now after hearing that, that makes all the sense in the world and stuff. And like what he did in Psycho and everything, people are still like following to this day. You know, you don't have to have the studio system to do it. And there are plenty of movies that come out that are that are not within the studio system. And then every now and then one of those movies made outside the studio system really does something fucking really does something in the industry and becomes a like, you know, becomes like the independent standard of like the decade or something or a movie that goes out and influences other filmmakers and stuff. Mm hmm. Uh, do you want to real quickly hear some of the um, some of the Hayes Code violations that um, Hitchcock intentionally put in? Oh, please, definitely. All right. So, um, and some of these are absolutely ludicrous. Um, no full size bed may be displayed, and oh god, the very first shot in Psycho when when we're in Phoenix is of a full size bed. Yep. Uh, undergarments may not be shown. Um, again, this is in the first shot. Both, um, both Janet Lee and oh gosh, who's her lover? It's Sam Loomis is the, the character's name. Yeah, I can't yeah. think of the yeah. Um, um, they're both in their underwear. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, criminals cannot be made sympathetic. Um, so Marion Crane again, Janet Lee. What does she do at the very beginning of the movie? Steal, steal money. Um, so yep. she's sympathetic. 
various prohibited words cannot be used. Um, and in in Psycho, this and this is much more of a sign of the times, but um, transvestite is used at the very end. That's right. It is. Yes. Yeah. Um, no lustful or suggestive kissing or anything that stimulates the lower and baser element. Um, <laughs> so you couldn't kiss for more than three seconds, basically is what this rule is stating. And mm-hmm. um, so, like, I mean, there's a lot of kissing at the beginning of this. Um, right. It, it's just, it's again, it, this is like all, like, a lot of this is like within the first scene. Um, the sanctity of marriage and the home had to be upheld. Again, opening scene is extramar- is an extramarital affair. Uh-huh. Um, this doesn't Christ. this doesn't pop up in it, but um, this is kind of interesting. Uh, no portrayals of miscegenation. Mis- mis- I, I'm not pronouncing this correctly, and I don't know why it's not coming to me right now. But basically, no interracial couples. Oh wow! Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that being in the Hays Code for sure. Um, However, there was one one thing that he one thing that he did do. Um, you also weren't supposed to show bathrooms um, at this point in time, especially toilets. And he not only just showed yeah. the bathroom, obviously in great detail, but a flushing toilet as well. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes, that's right. He flushes stuff down the toilet. Yep. If I'm not mistaken, during the cleanup and everything. Yep. That's right. Methods wow, of good crimes. For I know methods of crime are not to be detailed. Um, well, I mean, the methods of every crime in this movie is detailed. Very, very, mm-hmm. um, you know, between um, stealing of the money, um, Janet Lee's murder, and then disposing of the body. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. Everything is very detailed. You see all of that. Yep. And then finally, the last one, nakedness is forbidden. Well, we you see Janet Lee naked, so. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Good for him. I'm so glad that he fucking did that. Good for him. And it just shows that when you break rules, good things can happen. Exactly. It's just, I mean, when you really look at the Hays Code, that's absolutely ridiculous. Like, that's that's very bizarre. The bed thing, for sure. I I know. I mean, I get the the suggestion of it, but, like, just a bed? Like, that's... Okay. Anyway, I mean, that's why for a long time in TV and movies you saw um, married couples had separate beds. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Dude. Yeah, what a that shit is just so fucking weird to me. Like, it really, really, really is. It's and so strange. If anything, it paints this image that is just so the exact opposite of like how things actually are in the world. You know, it's it's almost like they're really taking the whole "this isn't real" to a whole other extreme. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, Gemma, people were definitely fucking in the sixties and seventies um, in the same yeah. in the same bed. Oftentimes yeah. with their clothes off, kissing for more than three mm-hmm. seconds at a time, it's it, it's just it's just so wild that that sort of that sort of code of conduct existed, and it, I mean into the '60s, and then but there there are filmmakers that were just like, how far can I go the other direction? Like, You're right. how far can I go the other direction? I think that's 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 mostly what I love about this uh, this era of movies in general. Like, even if a movie's not terribly, and believe there's a lot of fucking duds from Mm -hmm. from this from this era you can't you can't accuse them of not going swinging for the fences though because they did it every single time oh yeah exactly yeah when you it's almost like you have to test those waters just because you fucking have to like some of those things are so goddamn dumb you might as well um do whatever you can to push the limit exactly uh do you have any any last thoughts on the exploitation boom before we move on here I do not, dude. Let's roll along into The Decline. The Decline. Um, this covers the 1980s and 90s. 
And it's funny because this is really, I think, where the idea of the B-movie that you and I and most people our age, and really most people in general, um, unless someone's like 120 and they live through the original B-movie era, um, and they remember it clearly, um, this is where I think most people think about B-movies and like what it actually means. But oddly enough, at the same time, this sort of hastens the decline of what the classic B-movie actually is. Um, mm-hmm. And why we'll get to it, I don't think it really exists anymore. Um, so, yeah, we're in the 1980s, and because of the success of exploitation films, studios began, studios kind of began the decline of the of the B-movie in the 1980s by applying huge budgets to movies that 1,000% in decades prior would have been would have been just B-movie fodder. Like, there's no yep. way they would have gotten, you know, $15 million or $10 million at this point in, in 1960 to, to make any of these things. So mm-hmm. three B-movie, I'll call them B-movie adjacent films because I, I don't really put them squarely into B-movies, but certainly you understand, certainly they could have been. But yeah. three B-movie adjacent films from the 1970s are key in hastening the shift. Can you name them? Jaws, Star Wars, and Superman. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, especially especially at this point, it kind of seems funny thinking that like, like a studio would ever be hesitant about a comic book movie. But right, I know. It, but like, for the longest time, you know, our, 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 at this point in time, especially like in the 70s and 80s, our only like real um, reference point for, for any kind of comics on film is, um, is Adam West. Adam West Batman. That's right. And oh yeah. It's campy. It's dumb. It's fun as hell. I mean, those those old ones are actually really funny and fun to and fun to watch. But um, and they and they mm-hmm. broke their own ground, you know, in in certain ways. But like that's all that people thought about comic books was you know at it being adapted was that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So to to make a to make a you know the idea of making a drama about Superman and you know there's still some comedic elements and action adventure movie but it's definitely more of a drama um the idea of that becoming a hit in the 1970s is like mind-blowing just mm-hmm. quick lesson for anyone out there who's under the age of i don't know 50, 40 i guess <laughs> no you're 100 percent right on that dude like the idea that um they were sinking these big ass like sinking money like sinking like advertising promotional stuff into these types of movies you just weren't really seeing that stuff before. Like Batman existed, like you're right in the sixties on TV, there were like um, other earlier renditions of Batman on film, like dating back to like the forties and fifties and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But you know, those are definitely like kind of lost in like the shuffle and everything like that. There's like a handful of like comic purists out there that like, you know, that even know about like, anything prior to the Adam West Batman. So like the idea of these people like seeking this stuff into these kinds of properties at the time is just like, it just seems like completely like out there, like it's like completely ludicrous and everything like that. And um, on the Wikipedia page, Wikipedia uses this very, very interesting term and they only use it once on the entire page and it's called a list subject matter. And like, I had never heard this particular terminology before, but when I going through the article and getting some more context about it, it makes all the sense in the world that like this type of stuff wasn't really like what movies were being made about Mm -hmm. back then, you know, and like, Everything seemed to be like, um, you know, whether it like love or 
um, the backstabbing, betrayal, all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, the, the film noir things like set in like the, the city and stuff. There just wasn't the idea of a guy in a red cape who is an alien from another planet that looks like a human saving the world being put onto the big screen. This is just like things that people weren't thinking about doing until this point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're like there are smattering of examples. Like you go back, um, Kirk Allen played Superman like in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, George Reeves, um, not related to Christopher Reeves. Um, played him for a couple of for a couple of movies, and I think I think there was a TV series. Am I? I think so. Correct too. in that, but like, yeah, those were the exceptions, like the significant exceptions to what um, was going on in in Hollywood at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Definitely, dude. Yeah, and like when you get into Jaws and stuff, like this was not a movie that like people were throwing around at that time and stuff. The idea of the killer shark, if anything, it seems like it would be something that would come out today and shark exploitation and all those weird kind of sci-fi movies that come out. And like with star Wars and everything like this, just, it really took the science fiction genre and like gave it something, gave it something more, you know, it it really just kind of like expanded upon um, early science fiction concepts that were uh, developed and produced. Yeah. It it showed that science fiction doesn't have to be, um, we don't have to get in the nitty gritty about like robots and aliens. Like we can, we can tell a science fiction story that is, I I mean, you know, it's, it's King Arthur. It's, it's mm-hmm. it's that type of story. It just happens to take place somewhere else in space. Yeah, exactly. It's it is definitely one of those early examples of it's King Arthur. It's this. It's this. But in this, right? Exactly. Exactly. All right. So um, <clears throat> we so again we open the nineteen eighties with these with like big budget B movies. I mean, legitimately big budget B mm-hmm. movies. Conan the Barbarian is like the best example, dude. $20 million in 1982 on a guy that couldn't really speak English. Right. That's, I know. <laughs> that is a massive leap. But mm-hmm. you, you want to talk about the making the best of, of what you had there. I, I don't think – I mean, Conan the Destroyer sucks. Uh, well, it, it's whatever. Uh, it's ignorable. Um, and then, like, the, the most recent Conan uh, attempts at a Conan – excuse me, at a Conan adaptation – have all sucked. It's one of those. It's one of those like moments in time. I don't think you can ever repeat what Conan the Barbarian is. You know what I mean? Like it's right, right place, right time, right actors. It just it just happened to work. But yeah, even then, you still had tons of low budget offerings at this point in time, and because of where we're, where we were going with technology, um, we kind of Hollywood kind of unintentionally creates. I don't subgenre is the wrong way to put this. Please, if you can give me a better word for this. But um, Hollywood kind of unintentionally creates two new subgenres: uh, direct-to-video movies and the broadcast midnight movie, because mm-hmm. of just how many of these uh, of how cheap it becomes to you know the the production cost goes way down because everyone can go get a camcorder essentially at this point in time. Right. Um, you mm-hmm. know, it, and it's they're still expensive, but. Yeah. You're not like you don't have to rent movie equipment and you know rack up a five hundred thousand um, dollar budget simply just to film the thing. Like you can cut that down into like, probably like one tenth the size now. So right and 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 you know the studios making these the what would have been the poverty row studios of the time can make all these movies. 
jump jump the normal distribution chain, which would have cost them a lot of money, and put everything on video. Um, mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> we did um, we did uh, the video dead. Perfect example of a movie that had they even attempted to put that in theaters. The it, first off, it would have been swallowed up the first weekend and never seen again. And mm-hmm. the cost just to get it there would have probably been what ten times the cost of the movie. Easily, easily. So at this point in time, we just have technology sort of um, expanding the avenues for for B-movies to get out to us. And obviously this, again, sort of hastens the, I don't want to call it the collapse, but hastens the the significant decline of your ability to go see a B-movie in the theaters. Yes, exactly. That is totally right on that. This um, really just opens up that divide because now more money is being put into movies that were definitely were falling into the B movie category. And with budgets continuing to grow and everything, and it goes, you make a good point. It goes beyond just what you see in the, at the, the studio and on sets and everything. Like you have to pay money to get it into distribution, get things in the theater and stuff like that. And there's just a lot of money that it takes to even get it there. So some people who have a product that, um, you know, no might get beat out by Empire Strikes Back, which um, a lot <laughs> of properties did. Yep. It probably makes sense for you to put it on video, you know, put it in the, like, the, the midnight movie thing, whatever you can do, and um, try to make your money that way. Because, like, when, you know, Empire comes out and, and like, Jedi is not that much farther down the road, like, you know, those are that those are multiple weeks out of the year where, like, you're not going to be making money. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like no one is going to be going to see the video dead during that time period. Right. Or at any time period, as we kind of discussed yeah, with that movie. Yeah. But, <laughs> right. but that, but it's that type of movie, like the video dead that <clears throat> I, not that one in particular, but other movies of that ilk um, really catch on because like they're sort of, you know, there cult movies had always existed. I mean, that's that's not a new thing. I'm sure cult movies right. existed in the 19 teens, but right. now we had now we had a way to really sort of kind of add to the uh, I guess I'd call it the credentials of a cult movie because like mm-hmm. yeah, I got this movie. It wasn't even in theaters. You got to check this out. Right. You know, like yeah. it, it's really yeah. something that a lot of people haven't seen before. So like movies like The Video Dead, and I'm sure there's again there's better examples, but it's top of mind right now. Um, those those become cult hits simply because that's the only way you can see them is if you if you happen to get it from probably at that point in time you had to order it like out of a magazine or something, <laughs> yeah. um, order it out of Fangoria or something or no or you had to know somebody that had it or you had right. to, or you had to have the really cool the the dude who worked at the video store who had the really cool selection of shit. Yeah, 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 yes, that's right. Got only you. way you're going to see those movies. The whole idea of knowing somebody who has something and that's the only way you're going to do it is just like, it's like, wow. Like that itself is like speaking alien to me. I'm just like, man, like what, what nowadays, like there's not, with the exception of like, I don't know, maybe like you having like a cool guitar or something like that. There's not really much of like that just because they have it. That's the only way I can see it type stuff. Yeah. Damn, damn streaming services. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, there's just something, it, there's just something about it that like has, it, it gives it like an air of exclusivity and some mystery to mm-hmm. it. Like, you're like, oh yeah, this, this is like, especially when you, you know, at this point in time, um, oh, just to, to harken back to um, uh, Videodrome, um, 
you know, you could you could also see some of these things on you know like a late a midnight movie late night broadcast. But right. again, it was like the only way you're going to see this fucking weird like Japanese horror movie is if you happen to be turning in cable access at midnight or twelve thirty. At you know what I mean? Like it's the only way you're going to see it, and it just gives this very this era gives birth this very interesting sort of. Again, I don't want to call it an underground, but just like the the meaning of like a cult movie, cult whatever, ha- like deepens in the nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Like this is where I feel like what we consider to be a cult movie, and God only knows that definition has been beat with a baseball bat yes. so many goddamn times over the years. But like when I was growing up, and somebody said like this is a cult movie, this is like the area, the era of time that that is established. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, I mean, again, it, they exist, they existed before, but like, this is really where, um, really where it's almost like you almost get practical examples of it when your friend hands you a videotape of something like literal practical example. Um, so can you think of, throw out some low budget darlings from this era that maybe were, maybe were direct to video midnight movies or they were in theaters. It doesn't really matter. Okay. So, um, a classic one is the Toxic Avenger from this time period. $500,000 budget made 800000 in the theater. Still a fucking profit. Um, the Toxic Avenger, like when I was a kid, was definitely a pop culture figure. I mean, it wasn't as popular as like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but like out of my friends, there was at least like one or two people that had Toxic Avenger stuff growing up. Like their parents allowed them to have it. And then when Captain Planet came along, that was um, replaced, obviously, because Captain planet was the shit when we were growing up <laughs> uh, so um another uh, another one nightmare on elm street was made on a 1.1 million dollar budget mm-hmm. this was uh, like just as far as horror stuff goes um i do have a special place in my heart for the nightmare on elm street movies i'm debating on going to see uh freddy's dead at the new beverly here coming up next week i don't know if i'm going to do it or not but it's playing um have just so much nostalgic connection to the nightmare on elm street series it just as a kid it definitely like freaked me out i will 100 say freddy krueger made some appearances in my dreams growing up up. Oh, so, for sure, um, for sure. Something that I definitely just take with me forever is the Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. And then the last um, ones that I'm going to mention here, um, also a Wes Craven movie. And I seriously, the more and more that I think about it, I still cannot get over how much I love this particular character. And I need to read more of his stuff in the comics. But the Swamp Thing movies were in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I loved the shit out of the Swamp Thing movies as a kid. Like the, the first one was directed by Wes Craven. Um, that one is that was like, I guess like the more serious one out of the, the two, the um, revenge of the swamp thing or return of the swamp thing, um, which came a couple of years later with Heather Locklear in it. That one is a little bit more like campy and kind of fun and stuff like that. Whereas the first swamp thing movie, you're almost like, Jesus Christ, this is like a real fucking mm-hmm. movie and stuff, you know? And, and it had like some lightweight horror elements to it, you know, being this like swamp creature, but like, really it was, you know, the story in itself was just about like this guy trying to, like you know find his place in the world and everything like that and after suffering this accident and stuff so i um i really like dug those movies as a kid and like i had swamp thing toys like i i really 
just enjoyed the hell out of this for some weird fucking reason that I am struggling to even think of as to why right now. But um, these were all like these movies itself were like lower budget movies in the eighties that I really latched onto. You watch them on like TBS and stuff like that as a kid, like killing one afternoon. And um, I, I just, I, I kind of miss them sometimes. Oh, dude, for sure. I, I'm so glad, by the way, I'm so glad you brought up, I'm so glad you brought up both Swamp Thing and Toxic Adventure. I, I was one of those people that had had the toys and stuff. Um, the, the limited amount of toys that you could find for the, for the Toxic Avenger. Um, it, it's weird. It's like, it, it's one of those, it's Toxie, as, as he gets called, one mm-hmm. of those pop culture figures that like, it is amazing and kind of a miracle to pop culture that, that character is still even somewhat in the conversation in pop culture. Um, yeah, I considering know. even at the time how, you know, um, uh, the studio trauma films, mm-hmm. um, considering like how small of a footprint trauma films even had in the direct to video market and like the B movie industry in general, like they even had kind of a small footprint. And the fact that the toxic Avenger persists to this day um, I, I know that they've, I believe like there is at least like the very early beginnings of a new Toxie movie. I believe it. Yes. Um, yes. I, I want to say with like, with like Peter Dinklage, I don't, not necessarily as the Toxic Avenger, but I think Peter Dinklage is like attached. Um, so like the fact that, you know, what, what's the 35 years since the original, I could be wrong on that timing. Yeah. It's like around that time. Period, yeah. Yes. Um, that it, like this particular character still persists is a fucking miracle. S- Swamp Thing, I get, you know, there's comics and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. again, like kind of in a similar vein, I just can't believe that something as low impact is what seems to be low impact as Swamp Thing is still persisting. Um, that there's, it, it's just, it's such an interesting sort of take on, I guess, a superhero. Um, I mean, sure. Um, right. Okay. Just, I guess they're both, they're, they're both very interesting takes on like, what is, what a superhero actually is. Um, yes. And that's the reason why they still persist to this day. Yeah, dude, I am looking at this article that actually came out one day ago from Den of Geek and Troma's Lloyd Kaufman gave an update on the project. And they say that uh, reimagining the script is definitely better than the original and it's being so far this guy named Macon Blair is attached to direct the movie and it's in process. Like, and you're right. So we have, um, so the Kaufman is equally excited about the commitment of the players. You can't have a better cast than Peter Dinklage, Kevin Bacon, Julia Dreyfus. Um, and that's the names that he mentioned oh, um, in the, in the, in this like article and stuff like that. That's who he says are attached but uh, we'll see how that turns out. And yeah, this whole thing is, it's moving. The wheels are turning on this. Very nice. That, that's just, that's, it's just fascinating to me that, 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 I mean, I guess, I guess it's also in part sort of like the, the sort of the depths that we're getting to with the superhero stuff mm-hmm. to try to find, you know, the next thing that's going to sort of stick. Right. So why not? Why not kind of roll the dice on something that already has, you know, already has a built-in audience, even if it's a little bit small. 
Yeah, dude, I'm telling you, like, this may not make Marvel and DC dollars, but it'll make it'll make money. Oh, like, yeah. There's this there's this fucking Spawn reboot that's been floating around the last couple of years with like Jamie Foxx and like I think Todd McFarlane is actually directing it. Like, I want this movie to come out. Like, I love a low bu- a, the idea of a lower budget Spawn movie and everything. Mm-hmm. So like, while it's not, um, you know, we're not looking at a billion dollars here, but this is going to be stuff that I would go and see and like. You know, we're unfortunately we're we're not entirely there yet because the Marvel machine is the Marvel machine. But at some point in time, other superheroes from other comic publications or other just movies in general, some of these are going to end up making a comeback. Like we are going to be seeing a Blank Man reboot at some oh, that'd point be awesome. in time. <laughs> and I, I'll be the first. I saw the original one in the theater, and I will go to the theater and see that oh, yeah. one too. So, so like we're going to be seeing uh, this kind of stuff. I just I feel that it's we're just not there yet. And like right. the Marvel machine still got a lot of gas in it. DC is definitely like figuring their stuff out. So they're going to have their own, like, you know, their own little like Renaissance yeah. here. But in the, in the near, in, in our lifetimes, we're going to be seeing, you know, the reboot of Swamp Thing, maybe not be a standalone movie. They might just loop him into the justice league dark if they ever get that off the ground. Mm-hmm. But like, we'll see, we'll see the toxic Avenger again, hands down multiple yep. movies too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one, one that I'm disappointed that as far as I know, we won't see any more of with like the cult, with the, with the original crew, um, evil dead. Um, yeah, maybe this may be my favorite, maybe my favorite B movie and horror movie of all time. Um, the evil dead series in general, but I know, Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if you've gotten into Ash versus evil dead yet, but that's sort of like the. Bruce Campbell said he's done with his character. Like, yeah, he, he, I understand he's been playing him for 40 years. Like, right. <laughs> I get it. Like he's, he's done with his character and the ending of it was the ending of the, of the TV series kind of gave hints that like, there's really nowhere else you could go with this at this point. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of disappointed. I, I, but I, again, we've already done one reboot attempt at it. That wasn't particularly good. It kind of missed the point of what made it great. Um, mm-hmm. But so wouldn't be surprised if we get another reboot attempt at it. But man, there's just there is that Raimi and Bruce Campbell magic that no one else has, and right. that's why that's why the original Evil Dead and even are even obviously the the evil they just redid the movie again. Um, but then there's a reason why Army of Darkness, even though it's people don't have the same sort of nostalgia for it that like I do. It still has that Raimi magic and that Bruce Campbell magic that you just can't replicate. Yeah, you really cannot. All the different freaking skull warriors, all the crazy shit, the chainsaw fucking hand, like that is something that um, you're only going to get with those guys, definitely. Yeah. They wanted to, and I can't believe this didn't happen, but they wanted to name it Medieval Dead for for Army of Darkness um, because it takes place in the medieval times. Mm-hmm. And the studio balked at it. Interesting. How could you not go with medieval? <laughs> that is so fucking. That is a really good ass name, actually. Now that now knowing that, I'm like, why the hell did they not go um, with that route and stuff? That's a way better name. I, I know. I mean, I like Army of Darkness sounds cool, but like medieval dead is so succinct and gives you. I mean, like it's right there. It's medieval mm-hmm. dead. Like it's, I don't know. Anyway. It's, yeah. It's, no, it's more, in, it's more in line with like 
what I feel is Sam Raimi's personality and stuff. Yeah. Army of Darkness sounds like anybody could have made that movie. Yes. But like Medieval Dead is a little bit more of like a, a Raimi title. Yes, exactly. Um, so we had that. How, have you ever seen Blood Simple? Oh, God. Uh, the name sounds familiar. And if I have seen it, it's been a long time. Early, early Coen Brothers. Um, and early Coen Brothers. And I feel 100% certain that Sam Raimi helped write it as well. Um, and this is sort of, you know, you, you, as you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, like noir films uh, when we did the last segment and that was, that's like one of the things that is born out of the B movies, Westerns and noir movies. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think nowadays when we talk about like film noir, it's kind of held in higher regard. Like that's, you know, that's classic Hollywood, blah, 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 whatever. Those were B movies back then. Those Mm -hmm. noir movies were B movies. And Blood Simple is a modern noir, probably our first—not first, but one of the um, one of the early notable attempts to sort of recapture uh, film noir. I think it's from like 1984 or 85. 84, you bet. 84. Yeah, I'm look- Yeah, I'm on the page right now. I'm not seeing anything about Sam Raimi in there, but he might just have one of those like uncredited. I, it's. Kind I know of, he worked uh, with him on it in thing. some capacity, so it's probably just uncredited, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's early Coen brothers and it's, um, it, it's just, it, it, I don't know. It's, it's just a throwback to a different time. And like, again, like it's it, it, film noir has such a weird place now in our history, in our, in should say in modern pop culture, but in history, it, it was absolutely 100% a 60, 50 to 60 minute B movie would have been mm-hmm. any film noir. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Dude, this is early Francis Francis McDormand yep. too. Uh, M. Emmett Walsh is uh, in this fucking yep. movie. Yeah, wow. All, like, all the Cohen players, all the Cohen brothers players. Yeah, I mean, God, to get. I didn't know that they're with uh, Francis McDormand. I didn't know that they went that far back and everything. That is really. Oh, she uh, she was with. Which one is she married to now? Joel. Oh God, I do not know. She uh, she dated. I think it's Joel, but she dated him for like. 12 years before they got married oh jeez so like they 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 knew each other when they were like in their 20s no fucking shit and oh my god the uh the star of this movie john gates like this guy has been in so much goddamn stuff like he's been in like he was in don't tell mom the babysitter's dead he's just this character actor that's been floating around and kind of makes his way into uh he was in men at work he was the the guy that they shot in the butt with the bb gun at men at work oh yes yes yeah, so th- this is this is great that this guy made himself um, into, that he was a star of this movie. Just this little block here from um, '84, where he starts off with Blood Simple. He's in Thief of Hearts, The Fly, The Fly Two, Fourth of July, Born on the Fourth of July, Men at Work, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, and Curly Sue. Now that's a fucking run. If I yeah, it is. Heard one. That's a really good run. That's a really yeah, good run. Um, I, yeah, Blood Simple is one I want to. I I haven't seen it in a long time, but I got to go back and check it out. And it's. Again, like early Coen Brothers before they really, I want to say, yeah, it, it, it's early Coen Brothers. This before like anything of theirs really pops at all. Yeah, this is like I think it's Raising Arizona is a few years after several this years too. later. Yeah, yeah, this might be like one of the like one of the first like freaking things I think they did. Wow, mm-hmm. like at least like wow, that's really interesting stuff. And like yeah, Blood Simple is uh, Joel Cohen's first movie. Raising Arizona is eighty seven, so three years later, okay. and then it just goes right on down the list of all the movies I, we've heard of. And then you, I was going to say that then it, it, um, the Cohen brothers have had a run, unlike <laughs> maybe unlike any other filmmakers ever had. It's not necessarily like in monetary success, but like. Their worst movie, again, is, like, someone's best movie. 
Yeah, easily. Like out of there, I'm looking at the list right now and like, man, like a serious man, they burn after reading the lady killers might be the, the worst here and stuff. And like, those are and not bad movies. Pretty freaking good. Yeah. I got to see. Those yeah, are not bad movies. I want to see this Macbeth movie really badly, yeah. but I don't want to get Apple TV Plus to get it. I know, I know. It's, it's that's well, we'll probably get into that here in a little bit, but that's one of the downsides of where we're at now. <laughs> yeah, but, I know. Um, I don't. Do you, do you have any other um, any other little darlings to throw out here before we move on to the next question? Ooh, like they live was shot for three million, yep. made thirteen. That's a, the nice little one there, and um, that is that's that's my list. Yeah, you bet. Those are the ones I have to talk about. Um, also, got to talk real quickly about like Reanimator is one of my favorites mm-hmm. at this point in time. This sort of um, it, this this kind of defines like what. Um, this it, it it exists you know obviously in the theaters it makes some pretty good money i i don't have a i probably should open the page up right now but like it's uh 900,000 to 1.3 million made 2 million dollars at the box office made 2 million makes 2 million at the box office and they and then they realize like it's enough money to there's enough money here to make another one and there's enough of an audience and then all the subsequent ones go direct to video and you have yeah. a what do they make like six of them additionally i think i mean they made a ton of them um so like it's it's one of those things that you see it it it's it is it encompasses this era very completely. It's a it's a cult movie in the theaters and then becomes even more of a cult movie on video. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a bride of Reanimator yep. beyond Reanimator. Like yeah, there's a fucking there's a they're definitely making some ad off of sequels off of this yep. and stuff. And once again, for a for a movie to start off with such a low budget and it could continue to get subsequent installments is pretty fucking impressive. Yeah. Um, how about some notable shifts from the exploitation movie, the exploitation boom to the B movie decline? Anything that you notice here? Okay. So the one thing I did notice is, um, I got two things written down here and give me one second to scroll back down to them. The uh, first thing that I have is, um, which I mentioned this before, the idea of this, um, a list like subject matter. And like when I, um, wrote down this answer i phrased it as horror movies and science fiction movies get more horror and science fiction they become more expansive in terms of the type of horror and the type of science fiction and i go back to the interview with alex ross perry that they had on blank check where he was listing off the studio made horror movies and of the of the times leading up to halloween and he you know had like one movie each year for like eight years that was which by the way that was one of the most interesting history lessons of that era anyone yeah. can get it was really interesting 100 100 my god that that thing should be um a, a youtube video that like all people in film should like watch and stuff mm. that was an incredible lesson but he's he pointed out that like one of the common themes amongst the horror movies at this time was like the devil and you had like maybe monsters and stuff like that you but you're in terms of like the horror itself it was very very limited but it, once um halloween comes around and you know kind of I guess what blows the door open for mm-hmm. like the slasher genre and also gives us the idea that now the suburbs are haunted. I know that like psycho, one of the horror things was just like, Hey, anybody can anybody can be a killer, you know, yeah. the rise of serial killers and stuff during that time period. But like, 
once we get into this era of filmmaking, this is when like everything just gets blown wide open. So now you can make horror movies about just about anything. And like, it's the same thing with science fiction too. So instead of just like, Oh, Hey, there's aliens from another planet. You know, we can now have like xenomorphs. We can have all different kinds of aliens. We can Mm -hmm. have science fiction movies that don't have nothing to fucking do with space. So like, these uh, were movies and stuff that um, happened because of this shift. Like I believe that this shift perpetuated a more expansive, um, a more expansive catalog of subject matter for horror and science fiction movies to draw from. That's exactly what I had down. I had on movies are getting longer and deeper. There's just, Mm -hmm. there, there, you know, like you said, like the subject matters themselves. I mean, I mean like literally like we're getting a little bit deeper into meanings and everything else, but now we're also getting down deeper into that well for like what kind of sci-fi we're going to do, what kind of horror we're going to do. There's just, they're getting more and they're finding more and more things to, to do, which necessitates movies getting longer. Um, and, and really just in general, this is like, we're, we're going away from, we're, we're getting away from the exploitation films, obviously. And we're getting away from the sort of the B movies that are grounded in reality. Um, you know, like a lot of the, a lot of the B movies from the sixties and seventies, it's like a post-apocalyptic world after a nuclear war or after the collapse of society. Um, those are things that could possibly happen. Could an alien land in Antarctica or crash land in Antarctica and begin taking over the bodies of the scientists there? Sure. That's, I suppose it's possible, but a general like post-nuclear war, everyone going fucking nuts. That's significantly more likely. Um, yes. So th- yes. once we get to the 80s, we kind of get into uh, uh, not like uh, not fantastical in that like it's like way crazy, but we are getting into more things that are less tethered to um, tethered to reality because it probably were at this point the culture wars have kind of been won, so mm-hmm. we're not we're not as concerned with them necessarily. So we're going to go look for our new our new boogeyman, our new thing to be afraid of, our new thing, whatever. Um, we're also shifting away. There's still plenty of sex happening in these movies, but we're definitely shifting more towards gore becoming, mm-hmm. um, being at the center of these movies versus again, go watch a Russ Meyer movie. Even if there's not necessarily sex, there is a woman wearing for no reason, just wearing a really tiny bikini the entire time. Right. Yes. You bet. This is when we start to dabble in some of this, just like kind of a gratuitous proppy kind of stuff and everything, you know, in terms of like hot women and characters. And you make a really, really good point about the fucking gore too, because we're seeing a lot more of that in this era than we have ever before mm-hmm. in movies. That's for sure. How about, um, how about some, how about similarities that carried over anything that just kind of that stuck? Okay. One thing I noticed is um, movie titles, movie titles of B movies, have just kind of influenced the mm-hmm. way movies are titled even to this day. So that was one kind of similarity that I had noticed. And like, even um, taking like a movie like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for example, and coming out in mm-hmm. like the, the late eighties, um, that right there, that is a straight up B movie fucking title. Oh yes. There are, there are movie titles today, like hot tub time machine that come out that go in and make a fucking shit mm-hmm. ton of goddamn money. So like, while I don't really know if there was ever like a formula for naming and titling movies and stuff, but at least in when we see this shift happen, movies are becoming more outlandishly titled slumber party massacre yep. too, you know, st- stuff like yep. that. So it's, um, you're at least knowing what you're getting into from the movie title. Yeah, exactly. It's, they're almost, 
um, the movie titles are almost as equally bombastic. And I, yeah. I think a big part of it is one of the things that I've always loved about B-movies, they have the best goddamn posters. The mm-hmm. best oh, posters. Yeah. So when you have a really fucking outrageous title on that poster, it really stands out. When, yeah. you know, when you have faster pussycat kill kill on a poster, um, that stands out. So when you when you do get to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and it's gigantic on a poster, it's like, whoa, what the hell? Like, like <laughs> I love I love you brought up Slumber Party Massacre on a poster is awesome. Like it's just awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. Like when you go into the Beachland Tavern in Cleveland, on the left hand wall they have uh, three to five really big old B movie posters. And, like, some of these things are fucking art, dude. Like, just mm-hmm. the level of detail that you will see on a poster that goes into, um, like, an, an Amazon zombie or whatever it is, is very impressive. And a lot of these are these are hand-drawn, too. You know, they're not photos and stuff, which makes it even better. Right. I, it's Dude, it's crazy. I love – I'm going to – I am going to try to replicate that as best I can for, like, the covers. Oh, um, nice. For this, uh, hopefully, I can get even like remotely close because I I've always loved that. To me, that's that's one of the like if you were to just sort of send a capsule into space, like what is you know what is a, a, an important piece of American pop culture? B movie posters. I'd roll a bunch of them up and put them in this capsule and send them to space. Oh, without a doubt, dude. Like if I like I would love to start like collecting vintage movie posters and stuff like that. I really would, but um, unfortunately, I don't have the wall space or the money. God, they're, so. getting, dude, getting those original prints, those original lithographs, mm-hmm. oh my god. Yeah. It's crazy how expensive they are. Um, oh, yeah. I've, I've more recently, I, I think I think this is going to be my avenue for, like, because I love movie posters. Like I said, I love most movie posters. Um, have you got to check out some of the more modern alternate ones that people have made. Yes, my mom really got me a cool. whole book on them. Okay. My mom got me a, a book on like minimalist alternative movie posters, and some of these things are fucking genius, where it's just like a um, like an axe with blood dripping onto mm-hmm. newspapers, and that's American Psycho, like shit like that. It's awesome. There, there's, I'll, I'll, send you, um, I'll send you a link here when we get done recording. I, I know people love it when we talk about like the stuff that we're doing off air, but um, I'll send you a link. There's a bunch of ones um, from various artists real recently. And the one for the mm-hmm. thing is fucking awesome. It's a nice. really intriguing idea behind it. Yeah, but anyway, um, back to this. Um, yeah, so like the, the yeah, like those the sort of bombastic titles. They they tell you what you're getting into. And I again, I think they I think the big part of it is they just look so fucking cool on a poster to have something like that, yeah. like real big. Um, any anything else there? That was the only one I could think of, dude. Like I was literally trying to think of some similarities, and that was like the one that really stuck out to me. I, I love that one, um, and I, yeah, I love that one. It's a really good point. Um, you actually, you got more of it than I did, because um, I, I just was going to say like they retained, they retained the violent streak that really began in the '60s, and yeah. like I said, just expanded on it. Like the, the, the not again. There's plenty of of sex in these like in these '80s and '90s uh, B movies and plenty of uh, hot women doing stuff but they get it definitely they don't really close that door they just sort of creak it shut a little bit right right i got you dude i understand what you're saying that's definitely with the violence and all that stuff that is continuing full yep. fucking throttle and stuff it's even more of a monster than it, than it is today that is for sure and it all had to start somewhere yep absolutely all right, let's let's wrap this up with the digital age, BTV, and Mockbusters. 
uh, covering the 2000s until now. So like we said, it began in the 1980s where the at-home market opens up a whole new avenue for cheap distribution of movies. Um, you know, again, we covered the direct-to-video stuff. But now that we have even more direct-to-the-consumer ways to um, to get to get movies to, uh, well, to the consumer, um, major studios are moving even farther away from spending money on any of these movies. Um, why spend $50 million on a movie and then another, you know, potentially 50 to $60 million to distribute it and advertise it when you can just stick it on streaming and it costs you a lot less? So we are at that age where, like, the direct-to-video thing is now extremely direct. Um, it is right. a, an uplink into our goddamn brains at this point. Um, so when you kind of think about that background, when was the last time that you saw, that you think you saw a true B-movie in theaters? Okay, it is, um, this would have been in 2016. I went to the Cleveland Film Festival, so like right then and there, there's just going to be a lot mm-hmm. of budgetary stuff. I saw a movie called Edward, which was about Edward Moybridge, the um, the guy who, uh, motion, in motion and everything, oh. saw the horse like actually jumping yes. off the ground and stuff. Yes. And, and he's, it was actually the most interesting part, and they only devoted like five minutes of it into the movie, is that Edward Moybridge is actually the last documented case of justifiable homicide in the United States before, they, after he shot um, the guy that his wife was banging or something, like oh. his new, new husband or something okay went out and killed the dude and then got away with it because yeah this guy's like sleeping with my wife the united states government looks at this and is like yeah maybe this is a problem and they decide (laughs) to uh get get rid of the law and like this movie like i said this was at a film festival this was this is an independent film film festival darling i Mm. mean like this is like one of those movies that like when i saw it i was in the um in the the cleveland art museums theater and stuff this is like like i probably am like one of like three of the youngest people in the room because it's all the <laughs> the Cleveland film old people yep. and stuff like that that just like love the death out of the film festival and it's great I like the film festival but I don't love it to the extent that these people yes. do so that is um that is my last like last B movie that I saw as a part of a film festival and then other than that um the it would be this movie called The Devil Inside which was a, it's a low budget. It's like a found footage movie. It costs about a million dollars to make. It came out in 2012. Mm. It was directed by William Brent Bell. It's like, it's every one of these found fucking footage movies. You know, yeah. like they go to Rome, the devil is inside somebody. It's all quiet. And then somebody jerks their body a really crazy way. The audience gasps. And I was on like this really stupid double date at the time. And this is what they wanted to do. So gotcha. um, we went and saw this movie. And um, I, never saw any of the people that I went on a double date with ever again. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So, so there is, so there is that. And, um, that would be those two. That's my film festival one. And the one where it's like, I am actually on my own will going to a non-film festival theater and seeing a low budget movie. So, and here's before I, before I jump into mine, it's, I'm, I'm so glad you have a, a nice diverse experience with this. In the one case you had to go to a film festival. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, you're going to see a ton of B movies at a film, at a film at a film festival, especially at a film like the Cleveland Film Festival, right? Like, you know, like it's 
sure, you'll see some weird shit at TIFF or at Sundance or whatever, but certainly um, at, at the Cleveland Film Festival, you'll see some like even even lower budget stuff than that. So right, right there, you had to go to a film festival. And then just to sort of further back up where I'm going with this, um, the last time you the last time you saw like a legit a legit movie that would qualify as a B movie in terms of its budget and subject matter was ten years ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. It's it's like, and I know that this just you know shapes and kind of molds the definition of like a low budget movie. I've seen things that are outside of the studio system yeah. that have cost less than a hundred million dollars to make since then, but these are like. This is, I guess, like maybe the found footage element of it really emphasizes the whole B movie category for me. Mm -hmm. Because, like, when you're watching it, like, that's literally what you're watching. Like, it's like a bunch of, it's a combination of phone videos and, like, handheld camera shit all spliced together into one. Right, right, exactly. It's, yeah, the, the, for better or worse, during that period from, like, I don't know what, probably 2006, well, I guess we could really go back and start with the Blair Witch, but yeah, that's that's the first one I saw. Like I wrote that down, like as I was listing out everything. That was the first ever like shot for thousands of dollars that made millions of dollars that I've ever seen in my life. Right, right, exactly, I, and probably especially people our age and you know approximately our age, maybe a little bit older. That that's your first true your first true B movie that, that became, I mean, probably your first true B movie period that you saw in the theaters yeah, it, was Blair Witch. It was a hundred, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and like, oh, sorry, I remember ahead. going to that only because like, and just think about this, like with Bear, Blair Witch, what it took for that movie to become what it was. There was this like whole thing for a while where like people actually thought that that was true, you know, because like the whole, this whole found footage thing yes. was, it wasn't like new, but it had this like reintroduction to the world. And then when you couple it with this sort of like mythology about the Blair Witch and even how they make the movie itself, like it, you're almost like looking at like what looks like a documentary gone wrong. Like there was just all this shit that transcended the movie theater into the discussion, into like MTV, into all this stuff. And it really got this like, artificial boost like none other um like i haven't seen anything like that before uh, or since i mean quite frankly since, or yeah, since. Since, yeah, um right. and and it what really helped it it would really help this sort of um you know pre pre um not pre-internet but pre um you know being being able to casually go online and look up stuff about about movies you know pre mm -hmm. um everyone having access to imdb i think it existed at that point in time yeah it definitely did um, but it wasn't like IMDb wasn't the site in 1999, 1998 that it is now. So you couldn't just go look up these movies to find out certain facts. And then you had the right. filmmakers themselves lying. Um, yeah. Every interview they went into, they talked about how it was real. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Without without anyone being able to fact check, um, you know how like how else are you supposed to? You know what I mean? Like there's you had no way to tell them they're wrong. So it right, just sort exactly. of built the mythology even further. Um, I I remember hearing this or reading this somewhere. I think I heard it in the podcast. But it in 1999, 10% of all internet traffic went to the Blair Witch website. Yep, I believe it. I totally believe it. 100% believe it. 10% of all internet traffic went to one site. Are you yeah, that is... kidding me? 
that is fucking crazy. Like just crazy in general that it's a movie website. It's not even like a necessity site. Like it's not Google, Google. Or Yahoo. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the fact that they got 10% of the internet traffic just because of this mythology that they built behind a movie. That's insane. It's, it's like, nuts. it's not even that good of a fucking movie. It just has great mythology to it. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's some, uh, there's been a lot of critical reevaluation of that movie. And I mm-hmm. think it's probably better than it has any right to be, but I'm not one of those people. I don't. I really don't. I. I didn't really. I shouldn't say I didn't care for it. It just didn't hit me the way that it, that it hit like a lot of other people. Clearly, it's not something that I personally want to revisit. Yeah. No. I'm cool on revisiting it because it for me has not aged well because. I, like a lot of those people in the 10% of the internet traffic, a lot of this was the mythology for me. It yeah. really fucking was. And not to mention when, when I saw it in the movie theater, it was like the first time I'd ever seen like the handheld camera stuff for 90 minutes. I was fucking sick when I left that thing. Like yes. my mom picked me up. I looked all fucking pale and everything. So like I have no desire to like go revisit this movie, especially also because they made Blair Witch 2 for I, you know, I know what they're doing. I know the business and all this stuff. But you mm-hmm. want to talk about something that really hasn't aged well? It's fucking Oof. Blair Witch too. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you. No reason. No, no. The whole thing based on group hysteria. Go fuck yourselves. Yeah. So, um, I'll, so I'll, I'll sort of. I'm, I'm glad we had that discussion. I'll just add this real quickly here. Um, along the same lines, like I, I really couldn't pin down exactly the last time I saw a B movie in theaters. My, I've seen B movies ones that have been released recently but just not in theaters i really think i have to go back to sometime post high school and it's probably it's probably paranormal activity is probably the last one that i saw in theaters that legitimately hits all the notes of a b movie it if not i'm I'm fairly certain i saw that in theaters that movie was made for like fifteen thousand dollars that's fucking crazy right um yeah Otherwise, probably it probably would have been Saw was okay. the last one I saw in theaters. But that's yeah, like that's that's it. And Saw was like Saw by comparison to Paranormal Activity has a massive budget. It's like one and a half million or something. But right. yeah, but it's like still fits still fits the mold. I, I it's but that's how long ago I had to go back to think of a, think about the last time I saw these something like this in theaters. So it's it, you know those are what basically the whole point is here, Chema. It's been a while since these things yeah. have been allowed to see the light of day in a movie theater. Right. And I remember Paranormal Activity was the next Blair Witch in terms of the low budget to make a fuck ton of money and mm-hmm. everything like that. The best thing about those movies to me personally was the marketing and how you would like the trailers like weren't necessarily trailers from the movies. It was trailers of showing audiences reacting to yes. the movie. I fucking love that. I thought that was so great. The first, I'll tell you what, the first Paranormal Activity, that movie was, that was a really interesting spin on, you know, the found footage stuff was still in its infancy, but mm-hmm. that was a really interesting spin on what you could do with the found footage stuff. I actually really like that one still. Yeah. Oh, dude. Like that is like, that is definitely like a classic and everything. And it delivered way better than, um, God, what is it? Apollo 13, which I was just like so psyched up for, like a found footage uh, space. Apollo, Apollo 18. Stuff. Apollo 18. Apollo 18. 18. 18. That's right. Yes, yeah. you bet. Yes. Like, I thought that was going to be great. Nothing special. No, not at all. It's, yeah, something on the moon already? Uh, whatever. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah no, paranormal activity, that, that, is, that is a perfect example of how to stretch literally a, a no I mean, you could have made that movie for no money, essentially. If it's $15,000, might as well have been $0. Mm-hmm. 
Um, right. But, but yeah, like it, Chema, like I, so this leads into the next question. Do you think we'll ever see a $10 million movie about, I don't know, a female biker gang of bikinis brutally killing men in the desert ever again? Uh, Are we going to see that in movie theaters ever again? I want to say no, because once you get to even just a bikini biker gang, those three words right there, it's just a no. It's like one of these, like, somebody's going to make that movie. Don't get me wrong. Like, there's somebody making anything out there. But, like, we're not going to get that in the theater. That's for sure. I mean, you're just women's um, the women's movement inequality and everything like that has come way too far over the course of time. And that is, I feel is just one of those like dead in the water things. It's almost like uh, you're venturing into like taste part of it. And I just don't see it ever really happening. I I mean, sure. I I, possibly, um, I know where you're going with that. Um, I mean, there, there was a, there was a movie recently with Keanu Reeves um, where he was like the head of a cult in the desert, like of these like beautiful women. I think like, Mm -hmm. honestly, like Suki Waterhouse was in it. Um, but like basically more or less throughout the subject matter, more or less, do you think we're ever going to see a $10 million movie that's about something bizarre in the theaters ever again? I like, I really want to say no, but at the same time, something could come along and it just hits it. So with the exception of the diamond in the rough, we're probably not looking at it. It's going to take a lot for that movie to, to get to the theater. And there's a lot of things that have to happen that I don't necessarily know if all of those ducks are going to line up in the right way. Like even mm-hmm. if the movie's good, there's still a financial element to it and stuff. And like, if something's good, how good is it? How much are people going to sink into it to try to get their money back? So while anything is possible trends right now and everything is, is just leaning me to say no. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm with you on that. I just don't think the way that we're set up for these low budget movies now um, and low budget in quotes. Cause like, I don't think anything gets made for $10 million anymore. Like that's a fucking indie movie now. Um, I, I just, the way we're set up for these things now, I don't think a studio would want to waste its time on a movie that cost them $10 million when they can, yeah. like they'd rather, they'd rather invest in something that's going to cost them 150 and already has sort of a, essentially a built in audience than something that would be exploratory and cost them 10. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good way to put it. It's almost like when we were talking about like the NFL, like you just, you know, the NFL ain't going to bat an eye unless it's going to make them X amount of dollars. Like, I think a studio is in one of these positions where they're not even batting an eye at the $10 million project. You're better off TV limited series somehow sinking that money elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But um, to put that into it, like, I just don't see Warner Brothers cutting a, a $10 million check when they can cut a much more expensive check for a DC movie and like something worth franchise potential. I mean, like that's kind of like where we're going with movies is like, you're basically going to be looking at all franchises and, you know, or franchise potential movies with your one-off our tour, a tour, you know, driven film. So it'll be like, you know, you'll, you'll see a summer schedule where it's, 
number two this, number three this, Superman movie, superhero movie one, and there's Licorice Pizza in there because it's Paul Thomas Anderson. Right. You know, like there's and like, honestly, like I think that might be more of a statement on how we need maybe more prominent directorial figures um, to kind of usher in this modern, when I say modern, like post 2010 kind of audiences of, of filmmaking, because when you look at like these different time periods and stuff, there's always like these like three or four directors that like everybody kind of hangs their hat on. Mm -hmm. And while there are a lot of like good, you know, up and coming directors like Robert Eggers is completely earned my respect. Like I've been trying to see the Northman for the last like 10 days now, and I just have not had the time to get to the theater. I'm going to see it this weekend. I promise myself that, but like we need more, this is a Robert Eggers movie. Everybody go to the theater because it's Robert Eggers. We're still kind of audiences today. We're still kind of like, um, we're still a little drunk on directors from maybe like 10, 20 years ago, like the Paul Thomas Anderson's, Mm -hmm. the Tarantino's Mm -hmm. even farther back than that, the Scorsese. So I think we need, we need a new, we need like a new crop of like, um, like, you know, these four directors, they run fucking Hollywood for like 20 years and they, they do whatever they want for 20 years. Like those kinds of people. Yeah, I think I think we're I think we're on the the close like he, Paul Thomas Anderson still you know he's doing his thing. Robert Eggers I think is one of those people that can get there um, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, Ari Aster, <clears throat> excuse me, Ari Aster yeah. same way can get there. I think Jordan Peele could get there too possibly. Yeah, I yeah. think he he yeah. needs another he needs another like Academy Award type or not even not necessarily Academy Award type, but he needs another sort of. Um, another sort of splash hit like yeah. Get Out to sort of cement that for for him. Yeah, and let's let's hope Nope is it because the trailer looks fucking amazing. But I, I remember saying like the Us trailer looked awesome and Us was good, but it wasn't as good as Get Out is. And I, I yeah, I just I read the script for Get Out like um, about a month ago. I bought a little like seven ninety nine paperback copy of it, mm-hmm. and like it is just like. It's just still fucking good, dude. Yeah. Like I think it got better like over time. Like mm-hmm. even I read the script. I read the script five years ago. I read it again to, like five weeks ago. It's even better as a read after all this time. And if Chema could have read it for a third time, he would have. Yeah, believe me. I got. I'll wait uh, five more years, five six more years, and do it again. There you go. <laughs> all right. So if there were to be a renaissance of B movies in theaters, what genre is going to define it in the coming years? It's- it's going to be horror. I, I feel it's going to be horror. Sci-fi stuff, like you might be looking at a a handful of movies that are made like on a low budget that have a very grounded kind of sci-fi premise, but like horror is pretty much saving everything right now. So it would only make sense to me that horror would save or reignite mm-hmm. the B movie in the modern world too. I, I agree. And so I put it here. I just put horror is the easy answer. And it's probably the right answer. <laughs> I I do have this deep seated desire though that we get back the low budget comedy again. Um, yeah. It, like we had a brief moment there with old school and the Hangover, um, and mm-hmm. calling. I mean, they're low. They're low enough budget, basically. Um, you know, we had that brief moment in the early two thousands. But then, like, even then, because of how successful the Hangover was. And how rapidly Bradley Cooper rose um, at that mm-hmm. point in time, it sort of like immediately sort of ripped the hangover into like the next. I mean, I think the next film was like, was at least like triple the, the cost of the previous right. one. Or, or you of know, it, it immediately sort of, it immediately sort of changed the budgeting. And it also changed the way that we do cast comedies. 
mm-hmm. um, where we had this it's sort of like the bad lesson got learned because Bradley Cooper clearly once the hangover goes through, um, you know, and once the hangover comes out and, and just fucking blows everyone's socks off, um, it's very clear that Bradley Cooper is a movie star. Like that's yeah. very clear. Like it's he's not just the guy from Alias and um, uh, whatchamacallit, Wet Hot American Summer just, and some other stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like he's clearly a movie star. And so the lesson that got learned from a lot of these comedies at that point in time is, well, let's start putting movie stars in them. Yep. No. I know. Put comedians and funny actors in them. That's what made old school work. That's what made The Hangover work. You had you mm-hmm. had the comedic elements to balance out Bradley Cooper's movie star. You had the comedy ensemble in old school to balance out, I guess, wouldn't call Luke Wilson like a movie star, but certainly more of a straight man. You had yep. all of those weird comedic influences around him to balance him out. So, like, they learned the wrong lesson. They began putting movie stars into stuff. And that's when you get the, the fucking not funny Baywatch remake. Right. That's right, dude. Yeah. Like, the, the comedy, the B comedy or, like, the less star power comedy, I think, is ripe for some kind of uh, renaissance period. The problem that I think is that, um, like... The, the independent comedy, like you take like Napoleon Dynamite, for example, mm-hmm. or maybe Ju- Juno, even mm-hmm. the writers of these movies have just like such distinct voices and their sense of humor style is like so distinct. It makes them special and definitely makes them stand out in those time periods for sure, yeah. especially Napoleon Dynamite. So I think like we really just need a wave of fresh, different comedic voices to, to like write these kinds of scripts. And then just have like comedians and actors in them. Because for some reason, I'm not entirely like, I don't really want to see an Anthony Jeselnik written screenplay for no. some reason. Like, I'm, I'm kind of cool on that. I, Amy Schumer showed that she could do it with Trainwreck, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm open to certain comedians doing it because they have their kind of like own unique kind of style. And like Amy Schumer perfectly fit in with the Apatow world for, for train wreck. But like, I just like, I'm just kind of seeing like what an Anthony Jeselnik screenplay would look like. And while he is a distinct comedic voice, I just don't necessarily know if we're going to be able to tolerate um, an hour and a half of that. In a, no, in a he, form. <laughs> Anthony Jeselnik would be like, if they were ever to do a horrible bosses three, yeah, he'd be one of the horrible bosses that yes, gets killed. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't want an Anthony Jeselnik vehicle. I love Anthony Jeselnik. I don't want ninety to one hundred minutes of Anthony Jeselnik. No, I'd re- I'd rather just see him do that in a stand-up show than mm-hmm. see like how his humor style would translate into a movie. Right. Right. Exactly. Um. Anyway, comedians and comedies, please. No more movie stars. We don't need that. So. Is it possible, though, Chumma, that we're thinking about this the wrong way? That it's not necessarily a decline in B-movies, it's a boom in B-television. Yeah, that is definitely a good way of thinking about it, because the television content boom that we're experiencing right now, it is not all high-budget TV like Game of Thrones. Like, these shows exist out there. There's The Wheel of Time. Um, There's going to be House of the Dragon, which just dropped its trailer today. Um, So, like, there is definitely higher budget television but like for the most part 
that's not the case with a lot of shows like a bulk of these shows where it is just, Hey, we're paying a comedian to like come in and write a pilot and we're picking up so-and-so show They're like, no one's going to be forking out large sums of money no. for that. Like you almost have to like prove yourself as a show before you can get that, those kinds of dollars. Now, like I'm aware game of Thrones was very expensive for the start. Game of Thrones is also a very unique example because there are books, there is some level of a built-in audience and it is one of these properties that just hit at the right place and time so while game of thrones started off as more expensive as other shows it proved itself worthy and then they just basically gave them blank checks go do whatever the fuck you want right so while while there are a lot of television shows that are not necessarily being made on the cheap but but are being made at a lesser production value some of these shows will continue to be low budget but who knows some of them might prove themselves and get an audience and get picked up and then thus have more money sunk into them. And God only knows when that happens. Let's hope the show keeps its, let's hope the show, the show doesn't lose itself to the money. Exactly. Exactly. I think, and this is also a significantly better risk for various studios, you know, be they, you know, be they movie studios or whatever, like let's, instead of committing $20 million to, you know, whatever movie you want to make, what if we were to spread, you know, take this to our TV division or, you know, you know, distri- distribute to another TV studio and why don't we spread that $20 million over 10 episodes mm-hmm. and we get more bang for our buck. And if, and yeah. if it is something that like definitely catches on, then we have something that can, then the way, you know, especially the much shorter leash that movies have in theaters now, well, here's something that maybe can captivate for eight weeks or a couple of months that you know that our movie you know our which essentially 12 weeks now is what most movies are getting run in theaters i mean that's yeah that's about especially and that's like a that's like top you know a movies are getting that kind of right if something something bombs you can't see it in theaters after like a month anymore um right so like why not you know so instead of you know that potential risk something not even being able to recoup even a portion of its budget Put it on TV. They have to, you know, there's going to be subscriber fees and all kinds of costs that go into it that you're going to get back off the rip anyway. And then if it becomes something, then you have something. Um, so, like, yeah, it, it's sort of we're kind of going back to a business model from the 1930s where there's a there is an avenue where you can almost guarantee yourself a profit. Probably not a profit, but you can almost guarantee you're not going to have a huge loss. Yeah, exactly, exactly, dude. And like that makes the most fucking sense. You put it up on a streaming service on television. It gives it's like it's it's there. It's there for people to see. They don't have to put out any extra money to to, to dabble in this to at least try it. So it's a pretty good fucking. It's a pretty good move. Yeah. I just like I hope that um, like I really hope that the limited series is not abused going forward because we're seeing a lot of limited series. It's kind yeah. of like seems to be the new trend. I hope that they handled this right and stuff that just should have been a movie then becomes a limited series. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Where it's almost like it's almost like they don't want to make the movie. So it's just like, hey, let's turn it into a limited series. And then all of a sudden there's a bunch of fucking limited series. And that's all we can. That's all television is. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. Here's what I've noticed, at least in the recent sort of um, wave of limited series. They're all true crime. True. Yes. Mo- you bet. Yeah. Mostly true crime. So I'm kind of. I think that's just sort of in the way that you could only do a true crime podcast on like one crime for basically like a season, you know, ten to twelve episodes. 
I don't think you can stretch the um, you know the Anna Delvey Anna Delvey story into like three seasons. That's okay. It it has to begin. You know what I mean? It has to begin and end in eight episodes. Yeah, and I I think it works for true crime because we get to see all the little police working kind of stuff, which yes. like some of the investigative elements have been really popularized by these serial podcasts and stuff. So I think there's a little bit more of a desire for people to see the investigative elements of the show, which is probably why you get a limited series out of it. So that way you could follow the process. And like when we were watching dope sick, which is a limited series, mm-hmm. I mean, you're like following the court case, you see the guys get the discovery and stuff like that. You know, this is normally like boring shit, but I think since we've since we've seen Law and Orders for 30 years, since we've seen mm-hmm. this kind of programming forever, I, I kind of st- I'm starting to believe that some of the boring shit has now become some of the interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there, it, especially when it comes to um, subject matter like Dope Sick. It is mm-hmm. it is sort of um, intriguing being let in on the inner workings of how um, how pharmaceutical companies got people addicted, and yeah, yeah. the sort of the, the the way that you go to try to un, to try to undo that damage. It is interesting to see those steps. Yeah, I gotta say, like since I work in legal, like no joke, I kind of want a lot of movies to be discussions about arguments and finding evidence <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. It's like it's the dumb shit that like I like many dumb things that I think that everybody else thinks is boring that I think is great. Yeah, no, I I gotcha, I gotcha. Um, how about just some real quick here, some examples of some B TV shows, and let's go ahead and call these recommendations. Just go ahead and okay. throw one out. Cool. Um, show's not on anymore. Marin on the IFC, easily one of the greatest examples of B television. Marin's in like every single scene on the show. Mm-hmm. It is a very, very you you know that this is like low produced. It's like I think he uses his own house or something like that. No, it's a different house, but um, basically this. You could feel it. It's very, very low budget. Mm-hmm. Um, Tacoma FD, I finally got on that. Funny. That is fucking awesome. I love, I love it. it. I love it so much. Um, easily low budget television. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything takes place in the firehouse. There was an episode where one of the firemen had a twin, and they even like wrote in a humorous way to kind of like explain how they were, you know, copying the actors like, Oh, he can't stand next to me for a certain reason or something like that. So like there is that element of it. Um, and not to mention just anytime I see the broken lizard guys, it always takes me back to high school with super troopers. And um, the last example that I have is when to talk about B television travel shows, all this shit is B television yeah. at its fucking finest, it dude. Like, especially man versus food, all that stuff. Like, mm-hmm. it is like one guy and a camera crew. The most expensive thing probably is plane tickets and everybody's health insurance policies. Like, that is a great example of taking a charismatic host like Adam Richman, Bourdain, Guy Fieri, like all these guys, and giving them a show that costs like not much to make. And then, you know, five, ten years down the line, you're looking at a cultural phenomenon that people who hate Guy Fieri still watch. Diners, Drive-Ins, and Diners. Mm-hmm. Like one of the greatest fucking – one of the greatest dumb shows to ever exist. And I couldn't tell you how many restaurants and ideas for restaurants and places to go and we go on vacation that we've gotten because of that show. Oh, for sure. I, I, I'm not even that big of a – I don't – I'm not a Guy Fieri hater or anything. I'm not really a fan either. But right. do I watch Triple D when it comes on? Yes. Yep. Do I oh, call yeah. it Triple D like Guy Fieri does? Yes. Mm-hmm. Fuck yeah, dude. And that show right there, cultural phenomenon that like 
is so it's just like that show is like so important for like the dumbest reasons possible but it's like it's just almost like a necessity like if mm-hmm. we were going to a new city like if i'm ever looking to try to find stuff i would find a diners and drive-ins and dives episode to at least give me like a wikipedia page um kind of outline of some places to go right 100 percent. you're 100 percent right um good choices very good choices i'll throw out a couple really quick ones here um, as I mentioned before, you, Ash versus Evil Dead is um, certainly not a cheap show, but since it's in the it's in the it's paying homage to the OG uh, Evil Dead, you got to check it out. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the last chance to see Bruce Campbell play this character, and he fucking kills it. Um, so for sure, for sure, Ash versus Evil Dead, um, a, a, a sort of a a comedy that looks like it's more expensive than it actually is. Uh, have you seen Made for Love? Yes, we Love. have actually. Made for Love very, is very interesting show. Interesting show and very squarely a B movie um, put on put in, put into TV mode. Um, you know we're we're implanting we're implanting love chips into people's heads and mm-hmm. um, seeing if we can control them that way. It's it's definitely a and you know and it's really if you want to want to go real deep into it, it's an allegory about abuse about domestic abuse. Yeah. And even though um, who's Billy Magnuson, I think plays her husband in the show. Um, By- Byron something, yeah. I am in such a weird thing with that guy because I can't tell if I love him or hate his guts. Like, he's I such a tell. perfect villain. Um, mm-hmm. He's such a perfect villain for, especially for this role. Even though he, at no point in time, does he hit her. Um, right. More or less gives her whatever whatever he wants, but he still has her caged, essentially. Yeah. And he's still abusive to her. Nonetheless, so like there is like a deeper allegory there to it, and Chema, if I, I if I have said it once before, I'll say it again. If anyone out there has not seen Banshee yet, please see Banshee. It is and it's a nineteen eighties B action movie over twelve episodes every season, and it's fucking awesome. I loved it. I watched the whole show when it first came on HBO Max. Fucking amazing. Anthony Starr is fantastic. There are so many great episodes, so many great homages to earlier action stuff, the assault on precinct 13 episode with the, um, with like the native American gang and stuff like that. And the big ass dude and shit on the outside. Like what a fucking ride, awesome. dude. Awesome. Great show. I love that. You never know his real name either. Yep. It's perfect. 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 Old school B movie, um, fodder, um, that they put, they, that they, that was perfectly adapted for television. Um, so go see Banshee. Uh, that's, that is my last recommendation here. Just real quickly. I want to, I want to wrap up with something here. Um, uh, mockbusters. This is mm-hmm. so. This is where I think the term B movie gets like abused a little bit or misused. Um, and it's for it's for mockbusters and the intentionally bad movie. Um, mockbusters are movies that are literally, quite literally, they sound like a movie you've heard before, um, and it, they are just clones basically, but with enough difference that they can kind of legally get away with it. Um, and we'll, yeah. we'll we'll get to some specific ones here. Um, and then there's like the intentionally bad movies, like the Sharknados and shit like that. I, I personally think calling them a B movie isn't. It's just not accurate. Like, of course, it's a lower budget movie and it's fucking kind of schlock or whatever. But like to me, that's not what the spirit of a B movie is. Um, they they know that they're making a bad movie and they're leaning into it, which is yeah. not necessarily what every B movie is doing. 
No, not at all. There are some B movies out there that think they are fucking Lawrence of Arabia and stuff, but it, they're clearly not the case. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like, like me setting foot on an NBA floor. Like, come on, guys, let's do it. Right. Not the case. These movies are like intentionally, intentionally being bad. And not only are they intentionally being bad, but they thrive on it. It's almost mm-hmm. like they are. It's almost like. They ask you, like, how could I possibly make X amount X movie bad? And they listen to everything you say. And then they must, like, watch your body language, too, to, like, dig deep into your psyche and then find out how to fucking make it even worse. Right. It's 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 just and there's a place for those. Like, honestly, the original Sharknado, pretty funny. And it, it like I get why that was kind of a sensation. Have I seen any of the other Sharknados? Absolutely not. No, right. intention. no, no, no intention. Um, so like, yeah, so like, I just don't feel like it fits when it, when that stuff that pops up on sci-fi, like that they call it, whenever they call it a B movie, I'm like, nah, it's not accurate. Like it's, I, I no. get it, but it's just not accurate. Um, same with the mockbusters. Let's, let's, let's throw some name out, names out for some mockbusters and let's oh. see if you out there can guess what movie it's copying almost exactly. <laughs> All right. So, um, Atlantic Rim and Atlantic Rim Resurrection. <laughs> Clearly Pacific Rim. The, the the cases have their version of the Jaeger robots on them and really shitty looking kaiju monsters. And um, these are like no joke, dude. When I lived in Ohio City, we had a family dollar right across the street that I had to go to for certain things. And like these are the type of movies that I would see being sold like on the shelf in family dollar. <laughs> like it was nuts, man. Like it's almost like when you go into those stores – that are like um that aren't like Toys R Us or Walmart like major distributors like you could get you're not getting Batman you're getting like Horned Crusader or something like that and so th- this like extends into so much stuff that are like sold in these types of stores whether mm-hmm. it's movies toys everything it's almost like the whole store is like a giant mockbuster it it, it it seriously is it's like you've entered a different it's like it's almost like walking into a different dimension. Or yeah. and or a any kind of any kind of store in China that doesn't mm-hmm. have licensing right. rights, but they right. they can make all the shit. Um, so great one. Have you ever heard? Have you ever seen Transmorphers? Uh, no, but I'm assuming it's Transformers. You would be correct, Shama. You would be very correct. The it, it's I can't remember if this. I think this was an Asylum movie, which means it went direct to sci-fi, and it is boy. It's just. It's it none of it even like like it, the the transmorphers don't even look interesting, like they didn't even bother to make them interesting. I, that's all I can. That's all the only way I can explain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I completely believe it, dude. Like I totally believe it. It's like why even try? You, you know, we're gonna make it. It's gonna do whatever it does. So we're gonna make the transformers look corny as fuck. Yep. Here's here's one that mystifies me that I didn't know about until I did some research for this from 2017. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it should say it was filmed in 2014, released in 2017 under this title, Help, I've Shrunk the Family. Oh, yes, I've seen that before. I've seen that physical copy of a movie before. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. It's like 20 years too late. Yeah, oh yeah, they don't care. It doesn't matter to them. If they can, pay, if they can make a parody of it or, or parodize it make a parody of the name and then turn this into a mockbuster movie. They are going to fucking do it, dude. Just wait till you see honey. I blew up my family or help. I blew up my family and it's actually killing them. Right, right, right. Exactly. There's, um, 
Boy, there's here. I'm, I'm scrolling. I'm going to send you this site as well. Um, right now, I'm looking at Chopkick Panda. Um, and oh yeah, the 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 posters for these are insane. Again, that this is illegal. Um, the Punished. Um, prepare for war. Mm-hmm. The Punisher. Yeah. Um, paranormal Entity versus Paranormal oh. Activity. Of one course, already mentioned and Cabin Fear. Versus oh, yeah. Cabin Fever. Um, but I'm going to send you this website later. Like the Independence Wars Insurgents mm-hmm. um, versus Independence Day Resurgence. It's the, the fact that like they can get away with this is incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. It's amazing to me. Like this is some of the shit in legal that like I do not understand. I would think for like they would be sued like even just thinking about the idea. But somehow they have studied the law well enough to like learn how to get around this. It is, it is amazing. And like the fact that um, I was reading that um, WB and new line, uh, they took asylum to court to over this movie that they had called the age of hobbits. They were shooting in like 2012 yep. mm-hmm. and like, no joke here. I am actually surprised that Warner brothers and them won. Like <laughs> I do, like I seriously am. I like the fact that they found a way to, like the fact that this place has been doing what they're doing for so long and then they decide to like you know die on the hill of the name the hobbit and the fact it goes to court i'm literally surprised that the big studios won i just would have thought there would have been something in there like some clause some law something like that that they pulled out of left field to like you know throw the trump card on the table drop the mic and walk out but this was the one that that they that they lost on it's it's because their hobbits are real tall. Yeah, right. I have no idea. Right. Like, but no, you're right. Like, it's 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 weird considering how many of these exist, and it's mostly like the asylum. But there's other studios that do this. It, it just how many of these exist? It's just it's it's a I don't know. Maybe it's not even necessarily worth their time to litigate some of these. I mean, that right. could be part yeah, of the reason yeah. why, like, help I shrunk the Definitely. kids exists, or I shrunk the family exists. Yeah, that's a really good point because I'm not going to lie. I'd probably say your base rate to go into some type of litigation, arbitration, whatever they're going to be getting into a studio, you're probably looking at at least a million bucks, like just walking into the law firm. So, you know, it might be like that might be the fucking case. Like, and now I know that a million dollars to like studios really is not a lot of money. And it's almost like $2 to everybody else. But you do this over time, that racks up. Yeah. And if there is language in the laws and copyright stuff, which there's got to be because they've been doing it for so long, it might be one of these deals where, like, it's difficult to fight and they have to draw it out, which takes the time to do so. Because you could set a tra- – like, you could walk into LASC right now and get a trial date in two days, okay? Because mm-hmm. they just – they set things so fast. But – that trial is going to be continued. God only knows how many times the discovery process alone. Like if, um, if the studio decides to be a dick and discovery bombs, then it could take a year to sort through records and document records and catalog records. So right. the time and the amount of money that comes along with this time, that might be one of the biggest deterrents. And I'm not going to lie. It's really not worth their time at all because we were talking about the guardians and brand confusion and all that stuff. Like, if you're really confusing Atlantic Rim with Pacific Rim, 
that's on you, dude. <laughs> like, that's, right. not, that's not the studio's fault. And and what are the studios going to recoup? Like nothing. What, what are they going to take these people for? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Nothing at all. It, yeah, yeah. It's. I. I. I'm a, I, that was just sort of you know general guess that it's probably just in general not even worth their time to do this. So yeah. like, who oh, cares? Easily, fucking easily, man. It, it just cannot be worth their time. Like I, I just I'm now thinking of just like what would some of the specifics that would go into this. It really isn't worth the time. And even if they do get a settlement out of these people, Asylum, I guarantee you, has bankruptcy papers already drafted mm-hmm. for when, like, the, the the doomsday situation. Like, if they if this really did happen, like something crazy happened, and then what are you going to – you're not going to get anything out of them because they just filed for bankruptcy. Right. And I guarantee you any money that they've made is in accounts in Delaware and stuff like that where people can't get to the money. So you're really – there's nothing in it for you. Right, exactly, exactly. All right, um, let's move on to the assignment here. We'll wrap up with just what we're going to do. And uh, then, you know, any, any other thoughts here before we close out? So in classic B-movie fashion, we're going to do a double feature review. We're, we're going to select two movies. Um, preferably, we're going to try to find one from the modern era, so like the 1980s onward. Um, and we're going to try to find one from a previous era. I, I Knowing full well that that could be kind of tricky for us. Um we we we've I know we made mention before about how like Disney has a quote unquote a vault. I mean it's a, a hard drive somewhere um, yeah. where a ton of stuff is just sitting there that no one can get to anymore. Um, well, they've that's not just Disney. A lot of studios that own certain movies have stuff just locked up and it's just sitting there because it's not going to make them any money. So there's a right. very good chance that a lot of these V movies from the 1960s and 70s might not be available, but. So if we, if it's if it's totally undoable, then we won't. But I would love to see if I can if I can have a sit down and watch like a Roger Corman classic or a Russ Meyer classic. Um, it would definitely round this episode out. But regardless, if we have to double dip into something more modern, totally fine. Um, mm-hmm. And then we'll we're gonna give like a breakdown of like the a who, what, why breakdown of each selection, who starred in it, who directed it, wrote it, produced it. Um, you know why? You know what if anything makes this film important or noteworthy? And then why you decided, you know, Chum and I decided to make that, like, the choice. And then, obviously, mm-hmm. we'll get into a regular review of it. But we'll kind of break down the important, like, why we think this movie is kind of um, worthwhile beyond just, you know, we just need to see a B movie. Why is it worthwhile for us to watch it, basically? Definitely, dude. I'm excited about it. I got a thing and I got at least have a direction that I want to go in mind because there's one thing that I have been struggling to not bring up, especially during this last section that I, I want to have a conversation about. I don't know how much we're going to get out of it, but I think it's definitely okay. something worthy of the discussion. Excellent. Excellent. I'm excited too. Yeah. I, I haven't really, I, I have designs on certain things. Like I said, I really would like to get into one of these older movies um, and, and, and dissect them and kind of see it with, with modern eyes. But um, you know, it, whatever, whatever, whatever it comes out at the end is what it's going to come out as. But I am trying to, I will say this right now, I am trying to avoid horror in the modern time, in the, in the modern era. Because that's like, yeah. the, it's going to be the easiest one to go ahead and pick. So I kind of want to try to avoid horror as just, you know, throwing, throwing us a little curveball, basically. Yeah, dude, I totally understand, for sure. It's going to be fucking great, so everybody tune in a couple weeks. We're going to knock this thing out and have another fun-ass time. Absolutely. Uh, I don't have anything else. If you don't have anything else, you want to wrap, you want to close this out here, wrap it up? I definitely will, dude. Everybody out there, thank you so much for tuning into this installment of the Occasionalist Podcast. You can go find us on Spotify and all the socials, 
write us a review, tell us we fucking suck, whatever, just engage with us. It is good for business. And this is Adam Chemilewski and Matthew Pagel wishing you all the best, and we will see you next time.